I'm Arthur Snell. Welcome to Doomsday Watch. I think we're in a pretty dangerous time. Effectively, we're living in the tail end, aren't we, of the international system that was put together after the Second World War. We've seen a lot of the structures that have contained, not reduced violence, but contained it. You know, they say that stuff that can't go on the way that it is won't go on the way that it is. And I think that that's where we are now. It seems when you look around the world that it can't go on like this. That was Mike Martin, an expert on conflict and himself a veteran of the UK's war in Afghanistan. As he said, it can't go on like this. At the start of the series, we heard how the institutions that were established at the end of the Second World War to regulate global peace seem to be falling apart. And, literally as we record this, the world is watching with bated breath as a huge military build-up by Russia threatens war against Ukraine. NATO is divided and ineffective in its response. We don't know where this will lead. This series began in America, with its democracy under threat from hyper-partisan politics. America's chaos has created opportunities for autocrats worldwide, especially in Russia and China. Doomsday Watch has been about a lot of things, the water crisis, mass radicalization, failed interventions. But at its heart, this has been a series about conflict and the different ways that a disordered world is prone to generate more disorder. So, in this final episode, that leads me to ask, what's next? We need to think beyond the immediate future. That one of the core ideas of, of liberalism is a project to essentially make war impossible. Belonging to a social group is a vital matter of survival. We may be looking to a new chapter in terms of off-the-shelf technologies. Where we face the potential of weapon systems that are outside human control. Classic tribal behavior. It makes the capacity to assess the reality of the world more difficult. That is not what I see around me. I see people who want a better kind of world. I'm Candace Rondeau. I grew up in Chicago uh, on the south and north side at, at a time when the United States was in the throes of deep segregation still in the country. Uh, and there was a lot of you know, violence uh, in the 1970s. That kind of upbringing and that experience uh, in a mixed race household um, informed a lot of my experiences and my worldview. Candice is director of the Future Frontlines program at the think tank New America and an expert on conflict. It was in America where we began this series, asking if, after Trump, widening democratic divides are exposing fatal flaws in the world's preeminent superpower. So when I graduated from college, I went to become a journalist uh, a few years later. I was in New York City. Uh, I had gotten a job with the Daily News as a reporter with um, the investigative team. And my second day on the job was 9-11. And kind of from there, I became increasingly um, intrigued and almost obsessed with trying to understand some of the dynamics that feed violence, uh, especially mass violence, um, either mass casualty events, because I was witness to so many here in the United States, um, or, you know, large-scale conflicts and wars. Uh, and that kind of morphed into my work in Afghanistan, uh, where I spent five years living and working uh, predominantly in, in Kabul, 
um, you know, beyond the wire, as they say, all of those things kind of made me very curious about then also, well, what's the policy fix for um, all of this violence? 9-11 was a bookend to so much of the current geopolitical tension. The last two decades have seen an acceleration of conflict, of political division in the West, and of a sense that we don't know what we're doing anymore. Look, I I wrote this 10 years ago, I think it's still true, our massive overreaction of invading other people's countries in response to an attack on us from a non-state actor turned this from a counter-terrorism campaign into a perceived war on Islam and a perceived attempt to spread democracy by force. Our own peoples, you know, the British people, the Australian people, the American people, are just not not in that. They don't want to be engaged in that kind of conflict. And it's that lack of domestic support combined with massive pushback elsewhere that's, I think, really led to the situation we find ourselves in now. That was the renowned military strategist David Kilcullen. We've heard from him throughout the series, and here he set the scene for our episode asking, why can't the West win its wars anymore? I asked Candice if we've finally begun to learn from these experiences. I almost think um, the exit from Afghanistan is the evidence that it, that those lessons are beginning to bear fruit. Um, and I think, you know, if we flash back to, let's say, August 2001, only part of the world was really focused on Afghanistan and what was happening there. And so some of what we saw in terms of strategic surprise for the United States, you know, it didn't come as a surprise to people who were, for instance, in the CIA or uh, even some who had worked for the National Security Council in in previous presidencies. But I think it's pretty clear that the study of conflict itself, um, the formal study of it in political science, was a pretty new um, thematic area that we didn't understand, for instance, how an influx of aid, you know, in the billions can really create a distorting effect on the political economy uh, in these warlike settings. All we knew um, was what was reported uh, by the UN Secretary General at the time under a report known as the, the Brahimi Report, which talked a little bit about kind of the failures of previous UN peacekeeping efforts in places like Rwanda um, and Somalia but didn't really transfer those lessons to Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, And so, you know, in September 2001, we were in a very different place in terms of, I mean, we, the world, not just the United States, um, in in terms of understanding conflict dynamic. Where we are now is a lot of that learning has happened. Um, And there's a lot more expertise out there uh, than there was 20 years ago. Uh, and you might argue, well, it's not enough <laughs> to prevent all all the sadness and tragedy that we're seeing unfold in Afghanistan and uh, you know Somalia, Yemen, still in ongoing conflict. Uh, but it is, um, I do think that the biggest takeaway has been uh, you cannot intervene militarily, use force to stand up another military, and then expect the outcome to be a good one. Um, unless somehow you find a way to glue alliances together, both locally uh, in the given national context that you're you're trying to operate, um, but also um, with these kind of coalition politics 
um, coalition warfare politics that we saw evolve, you know, in Iraq and then Afghanistan. Yeah, it's really complicated when you want to get 28 different countries, as we did with uh, the NATO intervention in, in Afghanistan, uh, to try and act in concert with each other when they have very different ideas about the use of force uh, in these military contexts. In that struggle to build alliances lies another of the lingering effects of failed interventions, the weakening of a global order. There are those that seek to exploit these shifts. In episodes two and three, we looked at China's rising status and Putin's continued meddling with the backdrop of a divided America. Here's David Kilcullen. One way to think about the last three decades is a series of ripples emanating from February 1991, the 100-hour ground war against Saddam Hussein in, in, in Kuwait, known in the media as the highway of death. The 1991 Gulf War really changed the rules of war and they needed to think very differently about how they planned to operate. What they're doing here is building a military that can prevent a 1991 Gulf War scenario from happening to them. And, it, and we should also not discount its effect on us. Great powers, particularly the US, didn't worry about other great powers. They worried primarily about weak states, failing states and non-state threats. And then after 9-11, we really doubled down on just one of those threats, the threat of jihadist terrorism. And that led us to, frankly, exhaustion and overreach. And I think we're dealing with a sort of internal weakness now uh, at the same time that Russia and China have massively expanded, particularly China, in their roles as great powers. So now we deal with an environment where the dragons are back, if you like. So if the dragons are back and the US weakened, where does that leave global stability? Um, that is a very good question. I, I do think that there is a precipitous drop in appetite for overseas interventions. Um, you know, Americans are tired. Um, they're tired of um, not only being at war, um, but there, you know, there are lots of Americans who are tired of being perceived as warmongers. And there's sort of a little bit of confusion, right, um, about how to feel about ourselves in the world as Americans um, because of these tensions. But, you know, there, history does have lessons here for us. And we saw a, a similar kind of phenomenon after Vietnam. And, and that's still, that still has left a huge scar in the country. Um, in fact, so much so that um, many of the generals who were in charge of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq um, you know, would cast back to that time saying, we're not going to repeat those mistakes. Um, and yet they embraced a lot of the same military doctrine and philosophy uh, of that era. Um, and that philosophy basically called for um, propping up governments that were extremely corrupt, uh, you know, for the better good of containing some uh, other adversary. In that instance, it was China and Russia um, and, and communism more generally. And, and one reason why I think there's now this kind of mis, almost nostalgia and a rekindling of this desire to kind of foment a Cold War with China uh, is because that seemed like a pretty workable strategy. Um, you use proxies, you um, keep your military interventions low and low cost. Um, a lot of the work that you do is you build around rhetoric and ideology, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think those are the kinds of wars now that um, this current White House, uh, the Biden administration, is encouraging the United States and its people to embrace. Um, but that obviously is also not the best solution 
Um, and I think it really underestimates the scale of the challenges we face globally. There is no potential winner coming out of this kind of clash. If you've got two vast militaries at each other, um, it would be a catastrophe for the region. It would be a catastrophe for China. And it would be a catastrophe for the United States too. We would be dealing with 1.4 billion people living in a terribly chaotic situation, potentially a nuclear power becoming deeply unstable in an extremely problematic geography. India, Pakistan, North Korea, Russia, Vietnam, all these other powers around it. Uh, we would be dealing with potentially vast migration problems and we would be dealing with a collapse of the global system uh, because of China's integration into capital flows, finance, exports, imports. We would also be dealing with a colossal problem with, uh, in effect, the removal of a unified partner to deal with climate change and these other things that we need to deal with to survive. So, I don't know. I am not super happy, I guess, like lots of people with the fact that the Xi Jinping leadership is repressive and it, I'm not super happy with the fact that um, there is such a misalignment between you know, China and the outside world. I mean, I think there's fault on all sides. One hopes that these things could get better. The point is, at least there is a chance that they might get better if the United States and China decide to go for each other militarily I think that the chance of that happening dramatically disappears and that would be an absolute disaster. Professor Kerry Brown in episode two of the series warned us about the potential for conflict with China. But if these are the risks when we face up to the prospect of war, why do we do it? Margaret Macmillan is one of the preeminent historians of war alive today. Her most recent book, War, How Conflict Shaped Us, tells us that war has always been part of human society. Well, there are a great many answers to that question. And as you can imagine, there's a great deal of debate. I mean, there are those who argue that once upon a time in prehistory, we were peace-loving, that we worked cooperatively together, we were hunter-gatherers for the most part. And it was only with the development of organized societies that we became more warlike. I don't think we'll ever really know, but as far as we can tell, and I think archaeology is now pushing back the boundaries of what we know further into the past, it looks like war has been with us for a very long time. We can speculate about why people's fight, but I would tend to divide it into three main categories. And one is, if you want to call it quite simply greed, that I have something that you want. I don't want to give up that something, and you want to take that something. So if you come to it, you may well use force to take what I have, and I may well use force to defend myself. And so to acquire captives, to acquire gold, to acquire loot, to acquire land, whatever, these have been reasons for war. And I think a second set of reasons is fear. You are afraid of what your neighbor might do. You notice that your neighbor is beginning to stockpile weapons. You notice your neighbor is beginning to fortify his village or his town or his house, his castle, whatever. And you begin to fear that your neighbor is planning to do something to you. And so sometimes I think people go to war out of fear to forestall something that they're afraid of. And then the third very broad category, I would say, is ideas and ideology. And I would certainly include religion in that. People will fight for a cause. And that cause can be nationalism. We've seen how that can, that can play out. That cause can be to serve a particular master. 
That cause can be to promote a different vision of society, either here on earth or to fight for a better life after death. Religion has been a hugely important motive for war. And those three motives, of course, fear, greed, ideology, and ideas, are not mutually exclusive. And the Crusaders who went off on the Crusades to the Middle East were, I suppose, many of them motivated by some sort of religious ideal to recover the Holy Lands for, as they saw it, Christianity. But I think they also knew there were very rich pickings out there. And if you were the younger son of an impoverished Norman baron, going off to the Holy Land was a way to get yourself an estate and to get yourself status. So often the motives can be very muddled up. Greed, fear, ideologies. It's not hard to find those factors all across the world right now. So what of today? Like anyone who spent time in war zones, I don't feel any enthusiasm for more conflict. But will we have the choice? You're one of the few people of your generation who have actually experienced a war. I mean, you're in a very small minority. And that war, of course, was was well away from the British Isles on the, on the other side of the world. And I think because of that, I mean, I'm part of, I think, probably one of the luckiest, if not the luckiest generation in, in the history of the world, because I was born just at the end of the Second World War. And I grew up in a very peaceful North America. I mean, we feared the Cold War. We feared what might happen. But with a very few exceptions, we didn't actually think about it that much. Uh, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis, we did actually focus on what might happen. For the most part, we sort of got used to it and lives went on. There were, however, wars almost every year, perhaps every year since 1945, but they were far away. They were in other parts of the world. They were in Vietnam. They were in the Middle East. They were in Asia somewhere, you know, other parts of Asia, say, between India and China. And I think for the most part, those of us living in, in the area which enjoyed the long peace, um, Europe, the Americas, um, parts of Asia, really didn't have any sense that war was something that was present that affected their societies. And I think it has encouraged us to think that war is always going to be something that other people do in other parts of the world. And I think that's dangerous because you know one of the things I, I've spent a lot of time looking at is the outbreak of the First World War. And a lot of people in Europe at the time, in 1914, were thinking war is not something we do anymore. We're so advanced. We're so civilized. And these were the terms they talked in. We've had such progress that we don't do war. It's, it's people who live somewhere else and, and who are perhaps less civilized than us who will make war. Well, look what happened. You know, and, and often the metaphor you get is war came out of a clear blue sky. Well, it didn't come out of a clear blue sky, but that's how a lot of people felt. These notions that war comes out of a clear blue sky is something that happens elsewhere, is waged by people other than us, usually professional soldiers who've somehow chosen to be there. These things are only true until they stop being true. Mike Martin has spent a lot of time thinking about this and wrote the book Why We Fight. We fight um, for, it basically comes down to two things, the drive towards social status and this is individuals, and the drive towards belonging to a social group. Indeed, we've been fighting wars since before we were humans. If you study chimpanzees, they form coalitions and go and attack other groups. Which is almost what sets them apart from less, less intelligent animals, isn't it? Well, indeed, the, the cognitive development of primates is actually around, yes, there's a kind of the IQ element to it, but actually much more important is the ability to form social groups. That is the thing that sets primates apart from each other and actually there's a relationship between the size of a primate's cranium in the different species and the size of its social groups that it's able to maintain 
through personal yeah. contact. So Sapiens yeah. is the biggest. And as you said, there is this conundrum, right? Because why would an individual go and fight for a group if they're putting their own genetics on the line for others? It kind of makes sense if the group's closely related, but but we're not closely related, are we? You know, the groups yeah. that we can fight for are often abstract ideals like religions or countries or whatever. Yeah. And so we have these two drives towards status and belonging that we've evolved for really good reasons, right? Social status, particularly for men, gives you much better mating outcomes, right? The higher in the pecking order you are, the more children you're likely to have, right? And that's slightly not true in the modern, you know, hyper-modern Western civilization where everyone has 2.4 children. But certainly historically, that's been true. And it definitely was true when humans were more polygamous than they are now. Like monogamy is a relatively recent invention in, in, in macro-historical terms for humans. Yeah. And of course, what polygamy means, obviously, is that if 50% of men have two wives and 50% of men have no wives, right? So you've got to get a wife. And the way we decide who gets a wife or two wives, or five wives, or ten wives, is where you are in the pecking order. So social status has a huge advantage for particularly men, right? And the hormone that drives social status is testosterone. Men have a lot more testosterone than women. And we know this, like, anecdotally, like, men peacock more, and they chest thump, and they fight in pubs, and, you know, the rest of it. And this is why men are more violent than women, is because they're peacocking with each other and competing with each other. But, of course, that also leads to bellicosity and violence, both in between individuals, so pub fights, but also leaders tend to peacock against each other. And, you know, Libya is a great example of like the David Cameron, Gaddafi, now you'll stand down, I will come and get you, you know, all that. Yeah. The other thing is belonging. And there's a, that's really important to us because basically think back to where we did much of our evolution on the plains of Africa. So small bands of like 20 or 30 humans. And so you've got lots of dangers there in that environment, but one of them is wild animals and the other one is groups of other humans, right? Who are looking to kill the men and steal the women. So actually belonging to a social group is a vital matter of survival. And if you look at human society, this is really apparent, right? We, obviously family is the closest thing that we belong to, but also we, you know, I fought in the British army. Um, you you might be a member of some clubs or your kids, they probably playing sports teams right so th- this belonging yeah. is multi-layered we belong to so many things because we have this urge to belong to stuff because in yeah. primeval terms belonging to stuff makes us feel safe and secure and unfortunately the way that mechanism evolved is it creates in groups right that we feel that we love and we trust and we know them and we just feel safe but also it if you think about it by definition, has to create outgroups because you can't have a mechanism that evolves to, you know, that just says trust everyone because that would immediately be subverted by some people who evolved a mechanism that said take advantage of those trusting people. So if you have a mechanism yeah. that trust people in your in-group, you have to create an outgroup. And humans do that by, well, we do it with language, we do it with tribal tattoos, we do it with, well, for kinship, we do it with smell. But we do it with nation states, flags, anthems, religions, which God. So we've got lots of ways of defining what club we're in. And if you think yeah. about the British Army, right, 
think of all the embroidery that we have, like which regiment you're from or whatever, yeah. you know, straight away when you meet someone else who's been in the forces or when you're in the army and you meet someone and they're in the army as well, first thing you do is you check out their badge collection. <laughs> and there's that br- brief moment where you have a quick conversation, which I call the kind of bollock sniffing conversation where you're like, oh, what tours have you done? Okay, you're, do you know so-and-so? You're like, you're quickly establishing like... <laughs> what group they're a member of and which group are you in the same group it's quite you know obviously you are in the broader sense but like what you know what regimental groups they belong to yeah and so this is a deeply ingrained thing but because it's an in-group out-group thing you can't have in-groups without an out-group if out-groups threaten your in-group you your in-group tightens and there's lots of experiments that demonstrate this experiments loads of data i'm not telling you any quack science here this is really well established in the psychological literature as you get threatened by an outgroup, think back to status peacocking, you then, your in-group tightens, right? And at the same time, you project more towards an outgroup, some bellicosity or some rhetoric or however it is that you're, you know, a signal. And of course, if you think about two groups where perhaps the leaders of those groups are competing for status, but that is causing tightening of the respective in-groups. And so you get a kind of ratchet effect. And it's what we call escalation in the news or political mm-hmm. science or whatever, right? And they get tight and tighter, 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 tighter. And of course, we then have other mechanisms that we try and talk that down. But if those mechanisms fail, you effectively end up in a status challenge or in a war. That, I think, is something that really drives Mr. Putin to this day. And he still feels the collapse of the Soviet Union was the biggest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. It's not so much the state, I think, he mourns, the way of life, feeling that he is part of a big, powerful uh, behemoth, if you wish, which propels itself across international politics in a very deliberate manner. When we got there, it was chaotic. And the, you know, hearing all the different conspiracy theories that were mingling there, and everybody had their own one, like there, you know, there were the anti-vaccine people and the anti-Fauci people and the anti-mask people, and then there were the anti-communist people, and then there were the just pro-Trump people, and then the paramilitary people, and the guy with the Camp Auschwitz sweatshirt, like hardcore racists were there. All these people are mingling with folks who look like, you know, your aunt or your uncle. In terms of the impact of the Cultural Revolution and the fact that for all of the members of Xi Jinping's generation, it politicized them and made them realize that things could change very, very quickly. And the only thing that was really certain was the importance of making sure that the party was always there. We also have to remember that in a sense, he has kind of sacrificed his individuality to the party, like all cadres have to. And I think that that is uh, you know, an important thing to remember when people talk about the, you know, Xi Jinping's power. Well, Xi Jinping's power only matters in relationship to the Communist Party of China, and Xi Jinping is the servant of that. What I think is really interesting is that those drives are subconscious, right? We don't really know. I mean, I've described them to you, and you're like, yeah, yeah, I can recognise that from you know, whatever the last fight over a pool table I was in in, the, in a pub or something. But they're mostly subconscious. And what's really interesting is that we 
project, a bit like we projected onto Afghanistan, we project conscious reasons onto those underlying dynamics. So the underlying dynamics are driven by status and belonging. Yeah. Both for leaders and for followers. Yet we don't say, oh, well, actually, I just want increased social status because in evolutionary terms, it means that, you know, the rule of thumb is I'll get more women. But we talk about ideals like democracy or Islamism, or we talk about it's for my God, or we talk, and largely we, we, we talk about the reasons that we, or the mechanisms that we use to hold our own groups together. So when the West goes to war, it talks about values and democracy and women's rights and whatever, right? When the Taliban go to war, they talk about religion because that's how their group's organised. When Helmandis go to war with other Helmandis, they talk about tribe. You know, they describe the conflict as pshir-pshir. Pshir in Pushtu is the, it means leg, but the, the translation is branch of a tribe in English. Right. So they say the, the calm pshir is like the branch of a tribe. So they view it as a tribal war. And so each, each group, as, they go, as they're driven to fight for these subconscious drivings towards status and belonging, explain them to others and to themselves through the rhetoric that they use to build their own groups. Because ultimately what's driving them is their own membership of a group. They don't want to be kicked out of their group. And if their group is going, if there's some kind of increased threat or the security environment, you need to clump together with your group, Right. So talk about the things that bind your group together and project them, overlay them on those in-group, out-group dynamics and that ratchet. And so that's what's happening at a kind of emotional level as individuals and groups go to war. And it's the same if you are a band of 20 on the African savannah 100,000 years ago as to whether you're the Warsaw Pact and NATO squaring off against each other. Earlier on, we heard Margaret Macmillan say that war has always been a feature of how humans live. So is the long peace in the West coming to an end? Well, I think it probably is, or I don't know. Perhaps that's too strong. It's certainly possible, isn't it? And I think we need to take very seriously uh, the possibility of civil wars. Um, You know, we've seen examples of a number of failed states, some of which appeared to be quite stable. You know, for most people, in the, by the 1990s, Yugoslavia was a, a success story. Well, it, it, it had all these different, uh, most of us didn't even know the names of, of the different ethnicities living within Yugoslavia, except for the experts. But all those people lived together, we thought, very happily. And then look what happened. And so I think we need to be wary of civil wars. Um, you know, they can happen even in the most apparently stable states. Well, we're recording a, a year and a day after an attempted armed insurrection in America to contest the results of a presidential election. And in many other countries, a violent response to a disputed election is one of those uh, sort of warning light flashes. Well, the Americans are certainly thinking about it. Um, You know, more and more, I mean, I I follow the American press and more and more in the American press, American media generally, you get people talking about the possibilities of civil war. You also get people in different states talking about secession. Um, you know, Ted Cruz, the um, ever ready to start up, Ted Cruz, the senator, one of the senators from Texas, said the other day, you know, he said, I'm not ruling it out. We could secede. We'd take NASA with us, the, the national 
um, Aeronautical and Space Agency. We could take that with us. We'll keep the oil. Um, you know, we're proud Texans. I know that is silly talk, I think, and dangerous talk coming from from an elected senator. But, you know, it's, it is being talked about in California. It's being talked about in, in parts of Oregon. There are people in, in Oregon who want to secede and, and, and join with Idaho because they don't like the politics of, of, Seattle, of, of, of the coast. And you look at the rhetoric in the U.S., um, you know, people on both sides regarding each other as somehow um, less than human, um, you know, demonizing them, uh, refusing to talk to them, and just the sheer number of guns. I mean, the United States has an armed populace. I mean, there are lots of people who probably don't own guns, but there are enough guns in the possession of Americans, I believe, for every man, woman, and child, and they're, they're continuing to buy them. So, you know, and, and, and evidence that there are people in the military and in the FBI and in various police forces who see themselves as patriots who might have to take arms up to defend themselves against what is not very clear. Um, you know, and, and you, we've seen this in other countries. And when you start getting armed militia in the streets, wearing a sort of uniform, carrying guns, um, you know, we've seen where that can lead to in other countries. I mean, this is, this is worrying. And I think we also have to be wary of state-to-state -state war. Um, you know, when you get military planners and strategists in places like Washington and Beijing, saying when we fight, not if, that's worrying. What I think of in the case of China is that it probably doesn't want a major war. What, what country would, um, unless they're headed by someone who's crazy? And I don't think Xi Jinping is crazy. I mean, I think he's, he's, he's very um, canny, at least in, in terms of domestic politics. He's, he's been enormously successful. But I think the danger with China's policies and moves recently is that they're failing to take into account what others might do. I don't think Chinese diplomacy is actually very successful. I mean, China has managed to make enemies of all its neighbors, which is not, you know, if you want to get on in the world, that's not the best thing to do. But what I worry about with China is there might be an incident, there might be an accident. You know, the Chinese and American warships and planes, often at very close quarters in the South China Seas, often very close to bumping into each other. I mean, there was an incident about two months ago and what happens if someone sinks something or a plane gets shot down and nationalist feeling on both sides begins to run high? It puts pressure on the leaders. So I just worry about the possibility always of accidents. But there are other possible conflicts. I mean, Russia's probing. Um, you know, who knows how far that will go and who knows whether Putin will make a misstep. I mean, he is very good at putting pressure on and then drawing back. He but if he puts too much pressure on, if he can't draw back, well, it's always been a problem for Russia. Does it face east or west? Yeah. And what's its most important sort of policy and strategy and so on? But of course, Russia's size and problems correspondingly grew enormously in the 19th century when it expanded out to the Pacific. And the problem for Russia is a lot of those lands are inhabited by peoples who aren't Russian, uh, Russian, Russian they aren't ethnic Russians. Although, of course, a lot of ethnic Russians moved there. But the other problem, I think, is a demographic one. I mean, Russia's birth rate is one of the lowest among developed nations in the world, and I think it's still going down. Mm. And there are an awful lot of Chinese living to the south of Russia in the Far East. And I think for the Russians, just having enough people in their Far East to try and, and maintain control of it is going to be a problem. Now, at the moment, Russia and China are friendly, but how stable that friendship is, I think, is a really big question. Um, it has not been all that friend, uh, stable in the past. Um, you know, there's a major split between the Chinese yeah. and, and the Russians at the beginning of the 1960s. 
And I think in the long term, Russia is going to have a real problem dealing with an expansive and populist China to the south. Um, and how they deal with that is going to be a problem. But they're also going to have a problem, I think, with the peoples who aren't Russian in the Far East, who, who are often Muslim. Um, and of course, one of the worries that Putin has is, is of Islamic fundamentalism, and, mm. and he's cracked down on that pretty severely. So I think he actually has a lot of problems. And he also has a problem within Russia of an economy that simply relies too much on oil and gas and is dysfunctional in many other ways, a problem with frightful corruption. And so how stable Russia is, I think, is a really interesting question. Forces massing on the border, as you put it. I mean, is it as dangerous as it looks? I believe it is a very troubling situation. The United States is very concerned about what we're seeing, the buildup, the massing of forces on Ukraine's border. And we're quite concerned that Russia is preparing for some sort of very aggressive action against Ukraine. We're recording this as Vladimir Putin threatens an invasion of Ukraine. This might be the end of that long peace that Margaret was talking about. As Britain's Armed Forces Minister James Heapy observed, what stands in front of us, what could be weeks away, is the first peer-on-peer, industrialised, digitised, top-tier army against top-tier army war that's been on this continent for generations. Tens of thousands of people could die. He may, of course, be wrong. You might be listening to this two years from now and be wondering what the fuss was all about. But in early 2022, we have come closer to major interstate conflict in Europe than at any time since the Second World War. Whatever the outcome of the Ukraine-Russia crisis, there looms a much bigger question. A long-term existential threat, which itself affects the nature and volatility of conflict scenarios, I'm talking about climate change, of course. In our episode five on the growing global water crisis, Professor Aaron Wolf issued this warning. Water management is conflict management. Uh, You you always have multiple users, multiple sectors, multiple interest groups, all vying for the same resource. And of course, the resource is absolutely vital to to survival. So the dynamics are very different, but there, there is basically worldwide an inextricable link between uh, managing water resources and political conflict and cooperation. As far as climate change goes, I think climate change is going to affect international relations. It already is in a number of ways. One is going to be the movements of people. I mean, a lot of the peoples who are moving are moving because they can no longer feed themselves or make a living where they actually live. Um, Their crops aren't growing. The lakes are drying up. Um, the weather's getting too hot or too cold, the storms are too frequent. So I think we're going to see far more movements of peoples from the areas of the world. Africa, of course, is is an outstanding example that are being very heavily affected by climate change. But I think what climate change is also going to bring is, is more grounds for conflict, and that will be conflict over resources such as water. I mean, Ethiopia at the moment is, is, is going through a civil war. Its relations with Egypt have been abysmal, and it's mainly to do with water. And as you know, the Ethiopians have built a huge dam on the Upper Nile. Egypt depends, I think, for well over is it 95% of its water comes from the Nile. It's some extraordinary figure. So Egypt cannot afford to have Ethiopia turning, Ethiopia turning a tap on and off. And of course, that's one of the reasons the Chinese have um, got bad relations with a lot of their neighbor, neighbors like Vietnam. There's also India, Pakistan. I mean, that, again, it's, it's to do with water. And so I think climate change is, is going to 
affect and continue to affect the international order, and that will in turn affect the ways in which wars start. One of the key questions is what will be the nature of these future conflicts? Here's Candice Rondo again. Well, I do think we see some trends that are emerging that will probably shape the trajectory of conflict for at least the next five to 10 years. And and clearly, um, one of the big question marks is around artificial intelligence, um, networked technologies, uh, you know, off-the-shelf commercial technologies that would be more readily available to individuals um, at on you know for a very low cost. Um, that can change conflict dynamics, and we've already seen that happen um, with you know the proliferation of drones. Uh, we don't need sort of you know these giant military drones to kind of talk about the effect of uh, drone proliferation. Uh, which, by the way, contains some AI technologies oftentimes. It's it's very clear in Syria, Yemen, I mean, any conflict zone, uh, Libya, uh, that having that capability has enabled a lot of non-state groups um, and individuals. I, and I, I think one of the things that has, you know, lately been discussed, I think, in, in the national security community, uh, for those who are very sort of fixed on the technology challenge, is at what point... Um, will those types of dangers start to penetrate settled areas, right? You know, stable uh, countries, you know, like the United States or parts of Europe or even the UK. At what point will we see, um, you know, individuals and or small groups of people uh, deploy these types of small off-the-shelf technologies against, you know, governments or government targets or, you know, uh, civilian targets uh, in the context of, let's say, London? Right, uh, we were we were always worried about dirty bombs, and of course we saw in London, of course, uh, most famously uh, the attacks uh, in the in the subway. You know, there, there was, I think, a fear that the various terrorist groups would get hold of of chemical weapons. Margaret Macmillan. And I think we're now seeing a fear that those dedicated to a particular cause, who don't care what damage they do to civilians. In fact, the more damage, the better in a way, because they're partly fed by a need for publicity. Um, You know, will, if they can get their hands on something, you know, people can buy drones now. Um, You you see people playing with drones in in parks. Um, You know, not that far a step from, from people with drones being able to program them to carry explosives. I think we're we may be looking to a new chapter in terms of uh, some of these uh, off-the-shelf technologies, um, especially smaller ones. Uh, so that's a big concern. I also think uh, the networked effect of being able to communicate, um, you know, across time zones, uh, potentially even in the metaverse. Um, I think we could probably see some interesting challenges there as the metaverse becomes a more real thing um, for more and more people over the next, you know, 10 years or so. Um, You know, what kinds of uh, human interchanges will happen there that will result in conflict um, in the real world? We We already see how it works on social media platforms, which are relatively flat by comparison. Um, But what will be the effect of augmented reality uh, on how we think about our human responses to certain types of stimuli? Yes, all previous technological advances have eventually been incorporated, not always willingly. I mean, military don't like to have to change their way of doing things and it can be very expensive. But yes, technological advances are incorporated, but it's always been human beings who've been doing the fighting. 
And we've been moving further and further away from that. More and more it's become, well, certainly those nations which possess advanced technology have hoped it will become a matter of, of you know, guiding drones in or guiding missiles in and not actually having boots on the ground. What we have seen is, I think, people becoming more detached. You saw it in the Second World War. I mean, the pilots dropping bombs on Britain or on Germany or on the Netherlands or on Tokyo or wherever. But I think today it's possible to be in a bunker and launch a drone attack halfway around the world. And you won't, you may see pictures of what you've done, but you will be so far away from it. It's, it you wonder how much you actually are concerned about what you're doing or how much you feel responsible. Well, what we're facing now with artificial intelligence is we're facing the possibility of autonomous uh, weapon systems and how we control autonomous weapon systems, I think is, is a huge issue. And at the moment, um, a lot of the major powers are resisting building in um, ethical controls, for example, because they don't want to compromise the fighting ability of, of these systems. Um, but I think we are in a very dangerous situation at the moment where we face the potential of weapon systems that are outside human control and perhaps can't be stopped once they get into motion. Proliferation of weapons, and especially weapons getting into the hands of those who don't care how they use them and don't care what damage they cause. Well, look, I mean, even in, in organized states, you, you will get that happening. But I think the, the proliferation of sort of semi-independent or independent groups is, is something we should be really concerned about. Uh, already, I mean, with, with just the straight up, you know, privatization of paramilitary, uh, you know, contingents, as we've seen, for instance, with the Wagner Group in Russia, uh, in all the different contexts in, in the Middle East and Africa, um, it's worrying because it's not because those guys are scary. It's because their effects on civilian populations in terms of escalating conflict because they violate uh, human rights in those settings that we should be very concerned uh, because of course there will be a counter reaction um, from from local locals on the ground. Uh, and we know that from history. Many of the uh, fighters, the so-called Afghan Arabs, uh, that so famously went to Afghanistan uh, to fight the Soviet Union in the 1980s, they were veterans of the Algerian War. <laughs> so, um, and there's kind of this feedback loop, and, and we can't underestimate how that feedback loop can be accelerated by technology. We promised you big picture, so let's try to answer the big question. How likely is it that a major war will break out in the next few years? Here's Mike Martin. Effectively, we're living in the tail end, aren't we, of the international system that was put together after the Second World War. Yeah, the very tail end. The very tail end, yeah. The mechanism, the <laughs> UN, the International Monetary yeah. Fund, the state system, the alliance networks, all the rest of it. And... As we've discussed, those drives towards conflict are not going away. In some places, they're you know, accentuated by, for instance, in China, the one-child policy has created a couple of generations of Chinese people where there's more men than women, which, think back to, that mimics the effect of polygamy, and so it makes the country more bellicose and harder line because there's yeah. a bunch of men who won't get married, who won't be able to get married. Um, so those things are not going away. And demography, you know, India is actually another country that has more surplus men. So interesting that those two countries are squaring off against each other. At the same time, we've seen a loss of the structures that have contained, not reduced violence, but contained it. 
And people make the mistake of saying, well, you know, countries go to war and NATO, NATO's a war-making organisation, so we shouldn't have NATO. No, it's the opposite. There'd be a lot more war if it wasn't for organisations like NATO, the Warsaw yeah. Pact, because there is an element of creating a balance where it's just too painful to go to war, and so people step back from it and their conscious brain kicks in. People go to war through overconfidence, right? Go back to that peacocking idea. But, you know, the lack of dialogue and understanding is problematic because it increases the chance that somebody is going to misinterpret something or get overconfident or whatever. And and if you look back over history, the long, go back to the long dure of history, there has been a long progression to lower levels of violence and a long progression to bigger and bigger group sizes, right? Yeah. But it's been a, imagine a saw blade where you've got the teeth of the saw. So it, the general trend is slanting in the right direction, right? But, but in, it, as you zoom in to each decade or century, you've got blips up and down, right? Yeah. And I wonder now <clears throat> whether we are, unless we really pull our fingers out, I suspect we might be entering a phase of increased conflict that could spill over into a major conflict because we don't have those mechanisms to hold stuff together. And we don't really have a, a, you know, the ideas that we put together after the Second World War were sufficient for the complexity of the world at that time. Well, the problem that we're, the exact problem that we have now is that because of predominantly the internet, we've suddenly become a global group, right? Yet we're organized on a nation state system with some supranational alliances. and. That's insufficient. We haven't yet come up with the ideas that we need to manage a hybrid virtual physical world and one that is global in nature rather than nation state, predominantly nation state in nature. The solutions that we have are not befitting of the problems that we have, like climate change and all the rest of it, right? There's loads of global problems that we're failing to tackle because we're still organized at a nation state level. And so I think the real question in the next 20 years is, come back to that sawtooth analogy, are we going to effectively become, for all intensive purposes, a global group with a system of global governance that is empowered to tackle some of these problems and solve issues? Or are we going to end up in a major conflict? So I worry now that we're entering a stage where we might have a big war. I think there's a 50-50 chance. Fifty-fifty. That sounds pretty bleak. In fact, that feels like the end of the road for a podcast called Doomsday Watch. So, now for something completely different. Let's find the upside. With all the noise, fear and alarm that's out there, we sometimes forget to think about humanity's capability for doing the right thing, for coming up with amazing ideas that can make all of our lives better. If our institutions are failing, we need to build them back up. So how do we do it? Luckily, I know someone who's written the book on it. Uh, yeah, my name is Ian Dunt. Uh, I'm the... Uh, sorry, apparently that was a very hard question for me to answer. Who the fuck am I? Um... Hello, my name is Ian Dunt. I'm a columnist with the Iron Newspaper, and I'm the author of How to Be a Liberal. 
Ian's book is about the most optimistic, life-enhancing development that humanity has achieved since the start of settled societies. I'm talking about liberalism, which began to take shape in Europe during the 17th century, a time of terrible conflict with the Thirty Years' War and our own civil war in this country. So it seemed important to go back to the beginning with him, to how liberalism began. It's the idea that politics is essentially the struggle for the individual, that the old categories that we used to have around us really before the scientific revolution, so before the sort of mid-1600s and especially into the 1700s, you know, the church, uh, the family unit even, the state, really weren't of the highest priority. The primary unit in politics is the individual. It's not a surprise that it comes up when science is on the rise, when the idea of reason starts taking over in the manner in which we process reality. It's also not a coincidence that it arises when people start flocking to the cities and are jumbled up together, people who are very, very different to them. And from that idea of the centrality of the individual, you get this explosion of thought from figures like you know, John Locke, where you start to process what that means for economics, what that means for the idea of sovereignty, what that means for political power, uh, and what that really means for, for the individual in a criminal sense, in a social sense, um, and eventually in terms of their sense of belonging and what a moral life is. And we talk about that, that birth period in the sort of 1600s, and as you say, it's a time when there is a profound social change. And of course, there is also, there's, there's profound uh, strategic change. You've got the Thirty Years' War. So liberalism was not born in a time of necessary of peace and plenty, was it? No, not at all. I mean, most of the really core embryonic ideas come up during revolution. So especially the English Revolution, particularly with the levellers, uh, you start to see the idea of individual rights. If you have a sphere of protection around you, which ends at the point that you might interfere with someone else's sphere of protection. Those ideas then bubble up into the glorious revolution, really just a generation afterwards uh, in English politics, and are then transmitted over, predominantly through John Locke, uh, to the American Revolution, and are then instantly knocked over, almost like a domino, directly into the French Revolution. And the French Revolution, which obviously ends you know, rather badly <laughs> and rather bloodily, but before that happens, you get the rights of man. And the rights of man is really the first time you see a codification of individual rights, what we now predominantly call human rights. And that becomes this sort of crescendo, this real moment of absolute liberal triumph. I think really from the point the rights of man are unveiled, it's almost like a sort of secular BCAD. You know, it's a fundamental change in the way the world is organized. I think that's the beginning of the modern world. And it is a fundamentally liberal document, a fundamentally liberal moment. There's, a, there's an old-fashioned view of history to which I know that you don't subscribe, which is that kind of Whig view of history, that we're on this inevitable glide path. Often, particularly, this is a very sort of Anglo-centric view, that a series of great English thinkers and leaders <laughs> have helped shepherd the grateful people of the world towards a happier and freer future. But on the contrary, your view is that a series of individual tough choices and brave decisions had to be made, didn't they, to, for this to happen? Yeah. You know what's weird is it, it, it's quite remarkable how often in history ideas that are very, very similar in nature spring up at the same moment, even though people weren't really in connection with each other. But because they happen like that, I think this sort of, the, the Whig idea of history comes from this idea of it sort of like, like almost liberalism's a baton, you know, and it's passed from one to the other. And that... Yeah. 
allowed people to start thinking of this idea of history with a direction, you know, that it ultimately tends towards progress. It tends towards reason and freedom. And that is catastrophically false. I mean, people would say this all the time, especially liberals. They loved it during the Victorian period. And then you got World War One. You know, very few people after World War One, after the butchery of World War One, were thinking, oh, history inevitably leads to progress. For some reason, in our own period, people have started to talk that way again, because they've evidently forgotten that lesson that was learned in, in the mud of World War One, but the truth is history has no direction except that which you make for yourself. I'm glad you mentioned World War One because, you know, this podcast series has talked a lot, not exclusively, but a lot about conflict and a lot about, basically, about war or the, the threat of war in its myriad different forms. Um, so when, when we see huge conflagrations such as World War One and, of course, World War Two, and maybe also the rise of nationalism, which one could argue begins at the end of the 19th century and, and plays then into those epic conflicts of the early 20th century. What is happening in liberalism and why is liberalism not working or is it working? Are, are these wars part of that process? No, not at all. In fact, one of the core ideas of, of liberalism, even in the Victorian period, when you're looking at people like Benjamin Constant in France, like Harriet Taylor and John Stuart Mill in the UK, is a project to essentially make war impossible. And their central idea for how you do that is trade. After World War II, liberals are really forced to sit there and go, how did, not only did this happen, how did it happen twice? It's particularly acute because they have seen the concept of the individual be almost made extinct under Soviet communism, under Nazi fascism, um, and the, the, the scale of murder that that entailed. So they think hard about it. And one of the things that they land on is really what was going on in the banks. It was a primarily economic assessment of what was going on in that interwar period, of the collapse during the Wall Street crash, and that spread outwards, particularly to Germany, and was a direct contribution to the rise of Hitler. So one of the first things in that post-war period is the creation, embryonic, but the creation of, of the post-war sort of rules-based order. You know, what would later become the WTO, coal and steel, which would eventually grow into the EU and, and, and the single market, the creation of human rights law that covers the earth, particularly on refugees. Um, and that becomes a very core part of what liberals think about that period. The second part is uh, something that was really done by Isaiah Berlin and George Orwell, better than anyone, I think, which is to try and grasp the need for belonging that people had expressed through class and race and try to direct it, frankly, in a more harmless manner, but also in a more freedom-loving, a more reasonable, and more liberal manner to try and encompass that idea of belonging. But for that period, 1945 to sort of around 1978 or so, that's the period of the liberal New World Order on global economics, how it applies to trade and how it can prevent war. If we look where we are now, I mean, if we were having this conversation in, in say, 1991, we'd probably have to fight quite hard against the, the Whiggish view of history because we could say, well, look, it, it keeps going right. And then we won the Cold War and now we're, we're fixing capitalism um, and it's all tickety-boo. But uh, sadly, we're, we're doing this 30 years after that period and, and things aren't looking quite as rosy. Um, uh, dare I say it, they're looking pretty awful. Um, but I think the first thing you said was about uh, the freedom of the individual. And it seems that there's a tension there about the freedom of some individuals, for example, to become incredibly rich 
uh, whilst you know workers in their in their businesses uh, ne- never get any richer. And and of course, that there are aspects of the Thatcher Reagan revolution that you've talked about that its advocates would describe as liberal triumphs. So. Can we unpick that a bit of that sort of tension and perhaps ultimately something that kind of soured the concept of liberalism and took us partly to where we are now? Yeah, absolutely. So this tension is really there throughout liberal history. And when I say throughout, I mean, you you can see it in the Putney debates uh, between Rainsborough and Ireton in the middle of the English Civil War. You already see that fundamental economic dispute break out. And on the one hand, we have the liberalism of social democracy. I call it radical liberalism. It's the idea that the state and the market should be used for economic questions, that to have true freedom of the individual, you are going to have to take quite a bit of money through taxation from the more fortunate, from the more wealthy, to improve the conditions of the less fortunate, of the less wealthy, whether it's through housing provision, whether it's through um, interfering in the market to create jobs or to regulate, to protect against corporate misbehavior, uh, whether it's free education, free health, etc. The other view is the laissez-faire view. It's sometimes called neoliberalism. It's sometimes called libertarianism. Uh, And that's the view that really there's absolutely no role for the state at all. And that really there should be very minimum of taxation, apart from a bit of, you know, having some courts to to, to deal with murder cases and having an army to deal with foreign invasion. That's basically all there is. And it's just the market to do the rest. Um, That's been battling out throughout history. uh, And it really finds its expression in the 20th century through two extraordinary figures, through Frederick Hayek on the one hand for the neoliberal wing and through John Maynard Keynes. Uh, on the social democrat or the sort of radical liberal wing. Uh, And Keynes basically owns the stage, uh, arguably from the New Deal in the US, but certainly internationally, you know, from the end of the Second World War, right through until stagflation in the 70s. And then in the 70s, you just get this period where they're trying Keynesian solutions to economic problems. They pull the lever and it doesn't work. Unemployment rises, inflation rises. The Keynesians briefly run out of ideas. And suddenly there's the counter-revolution. Thatcher, Reagan, the right-wing view of the economic question in liberalism. And from there until arguably you know, the financial crash in 2008, you get this sort of uninterrupted process of just pure, full-blooded, neoliberal thought. And then the financial crash itself seems like a counterintuitive case because you one would have thought that that would have then brought in a new era of a return to social democracy or, or radical liberalism, but it doesn't seem to have done that. So why, why didn't that work? It's funny, isn't it? Because you yeah. see it almost, um, almost instantly. As, as soon as the banks in the U.S., start crashing, Keynesianism just comes back with a flash. Suddenly it's, we've got to step in, we've got to prop them up. You start seeing a sort of global fiscal stimulus being negotiated by figures like Brown uh, and Obama and Merkel. Um, And yet there's a sudden switch afterwards towards austerity. And austerity is pure sort of neoliberal economics, a punishment mechanism that essentially takes uh, the consequences of financial misbehavior in the private sector and penalizes uh, public sector workers and public sector users for, for, yeah. for those problems. And that creates a sort of political backlash that I think is a key role in the sort of emergence of populism in the 21st century. And that is really, you know, a question of just how things flicker politically. It's never quite, when you look throughout history, I mean, I've sort of the last two years reading about the last 400 years of history, 
And it's never just this sudden, it therefore follows and the next day it was realized. It's always a sort of slow, sludgy, difficult process whereby it's assessed. It feels more like subtext until one day you wake up and you realize that actually the terms of the conversation have fundamentally changed. Yeah, it's, it's a sort of thing of the change of the seasons. You know, you don't notice it's happening until it has yes. happened. Yes, exactly. Um, and so that's, that's kind of brought us to where we are now. And, and we're, we're in the era of the new nationalism. I mean, that's, that's a chapter in your book. Some people talk about populism. And of course, a major aspect of that is the online world and a world in which, uh, coming back to this concept of the individual, it, it seems that the way the individual interacts with the world, and particularly the world of ideas, has 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 changed fundamentally. I mean, I'm I, I may be wrong about that. And and the, the fusion of those two things of the new nationalism, the sort of polarizing effect of the online world, uh, has created what feels like a very unstable and illiberal era. What, what's your what's your view on that? Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, you know, I mean, the, the 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 key thing when you look at John Stuart Mill talking about the press in the Victorian period, when you look at George Orwell talking about the way that uh, newspapers work in the post-war period, and now you look at today with social media, you see the same process, which is, is your, your process of understanding the world based on objective empirical assessments of what is going on in it, or is it in fact trapped in this kind of self-affirming information process now, that was bad enough under a biased press, you know, in 1945. It's now many, many, many degrees worse than that. But it's also, I think, about uh, a process that isn't fundamentally technological. It's fundamentally psychological. It is about ourselves. It's about our need for a group identity. It's about our need for a sense of belonging. And one of the ways that we approach that is by sort of moral outrage, any kind of a strong emotional response. You, you will notice, if you, anyone who spends any time on social media, will notice that strong emotional responses are what gets shared or what goes viral, whereas sort yeah. of, you know, more august sitting back, on the one hand this, on the one hand that, doesn't go anywhere. Doesn't get anything, yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, it's, it's absolute death. <laughs> it's, it's like the BBC <laughs> approach. Um, so it creates this process, this sort of endless bleeding machine that just seeks moral punishment on a day-by-day basis, fills people with fear, and then encourages them to stay closer and closer into what they think is safe territory within their tribe. It makes communication between people who have different ideas more difficult. It makes the capacity to assess the reality of the world more difficult. And right now, we are addicted to it. We're addicted to it on purpose. You know, these social media sites were set up to replicate the lessons from advertising, which were themselves lessons from gambling, the pull down menu that gives you different red highlights of uh, likes, of messages, of approval, all meant to trigger that part of the brain that is seeking a variable reward function on the basis of its tribal identity. And the reason we're addicted, yeah, sure, is because they built it that way, but because it speaks directly to core aspects of our psychology. And that's what's happening kind of inside our brains. Is what's happening at the global level when we talk about the, the rise of nationalist authoritarian figures? And of course, it varies from country to country, but there's definitely a lot of it about. Um, is there something else that's adding to that? Or is this just the mass effect of all these people 
sort of allowing their brains to be cycled through this this weird kind of disruptive process. So when you look at sort of the literature on this and the debates around it, especially by academics, but by other sort of writers, you, you'll see a lot of fighting about what this all comes down to. And my view is basically that, you know, most political debates of it is fundamentally about X are not very useful and that mm. things can have multiple causes. I think if you look at the world that we're in right now, it is those three factors, social media and that change in the processing of information about the world, that after effects, economic and political from the financial collapse that we experience and the pounding of austerity and the rise of identity politics, which thinks of the group much more highly than it thinks of the individual. These three factors are core to understanding what is happening to us today. Yeah. So going back to the post-Second World War liberal international order, I mean, you talked about economics, but of course it was also about the politics. It was about um, uh, taking, well, turning conflict into trade, basically. Um, so when you when you look at the potential for those really major uh, sort of tectonic clashes, what's your uh, perspective on on sort of how liberalism survives those things? It's really hard because many of the current sort of causes of U.S. China friction stem from the implementation of liberal orthodoxy. So yeah. when China was brought into the WTO, that was considered this great moment of triumph, right? That's exactly what we're talking about when we think trade will replace war. So you bring them in, you know, you bring yeah. them in. And yet we've got to be honest and say that China in the WTO has not worked. You know, you look at, I mean, Trump may have pursued his issues with this in the most grotesquely simple-minded and barbaric way imaginable. But nevertheless, many of the underlying concerns about China's behavior were perfectly valid. So it's actually quite hard to answer now, you know, where where do you go with that relationship? I think the same thing applies to Russia. I mean, you look at the, you know, you look at Ukraine, the classic flashpoint um, of, of where there could be conflict with, with Russia. The origin of that dispute lies a problem over customs unions, customs territories, right? You know, yeah. it was when there was an association agreement with the EU on the one hand, and Putin was trying to bully Ukraine into joining sort of Russian customs union on the other. And that obviously you see again, the reality of that liberal approach, but also the difficulties in day-to-day -day politics of how you go about it when you have actors who won't play ball. Now, the easiest answer for this, and it's a bit of a cop-out, but I think it's fundamentally a philosophically true one, is this is why we maintain the rules-based system. You know, this is why you make it, it's, it's not that there's just a moral advantage to playing by the rules and to signing up to the core ideas of a liberal free society. It's that there's a fundamental self-advantage, an economic advantage to doing so, and that countries will get penalized by not, by not participating in that. Now, it seems that those, that ultimately, that confidence in what the rules-based system offers is the way to proceed. I suppose there's all, it's worth saying as well that we're in this period where there's a sort of lack of confidence, not just in liberalism, but really in the entirety of Western civilization, in the yeah. idea that the free society works. Yeah. Now, you know, you, you see the rise of China, for instance. And this is the same thing that you would see, by the way, we forget it now. But, you know, in the late 40s, in the early 50s, you look at the US, you look at Britain, there was a belief, you know, the Soviet Union was simply more efficient. It simply ultimately was a more efficient way of organizing the economy, of society. It would eventually triumph. We forget it now, but that's how people thought at the time. Now, actually, I, I don't believe that. I believe in Karl Popper's assessment, thank good, decent liberal that he was, that the free society is not only more moral, it is also more efficient. 
because it can see problems before they arise. It has the confidence to outwardly speak of them and inwardly address them, and therefore operates at a higher level of efficiency than closed totalitarian societies. So in the broader scheme, I have a greater confidence that countries like China, like Russia, will not be able to compete, even if at the moment it does feel that they, are, they have a, a sort of almost like the wind of history, you know, is, is pushing at their sails. Yeah. And particularly with China, I mean, it, it's possible, I think, to slightly put a wall a bit around Russia. Uh, you know, it is, it is very self-evidently a declining power, albeit one that has the potential to cause a lot of people a lot of difficulty, mm. whereas you can't say that about China. Um, so how is it, you know, you and as part of liberal history uh, can provide such a cogent, compelling argument for the value or the advantage of this rules-based system but, but China doesn't seem very interested in that. So wh- wh- what's, what's the problem here? You know what the incredible... I had a conversation the other day um, with a liberal from Hong Kong. Mm. Uh, and they were saying, you know, when they were... I think they were about sort of 50 years old. They were saying when they were, when they were growing up, you know, across China, where obviously they had family where they visited, you know, yeah. the, what they aspired to quietly, very quietly, mm. was the Western life. Yeah. was those values of autonomy, of individual choice, of self-flourishing, of freedom, of reason. And that in recent years, you almost don't hear that at all anymore. You're saying you hear it even less and less in Hong Kong, let alone in mainland China. Yeah. Um, and that was because the West just seemed to be in this process of just, just self-harm, just cutting off bits of itself, acting in this completely irrational way. I mean, you know, if, if democracy means electing Donald Trump, you know, if it means pursuing Brexit and then spending five years of your life cutting off your own trade uh, arrangements so that you can have less Polish plumbers coming over, then obviously you look at it and just think, well, maybe, you know, maybe that's not such a fantastic idea after all. <laughs> you know, so I mean, partly, I think the decline in the populations of many countries living under closed systems in their commitment and their faith in the West comes from our failure to abide by faith in ourselves. And that is what I see most of all in the West now. I think you see it from the from the defeat in Afghanistan, that humbling, humiliating flight is just a, a, a West that fundamentally does not have confidence in its own values and certainly does not have the staying power to implement them anywhere else. And until that is fixed, I think that we will not see an improvement and we will not see any more uh, respect from closed country societies about the kind of society that we have in the West. I attended a, a talk that you gave a few weeks ago, which was entitled How Liberalism Will Save Us. Um, so no, with no, no pressure, um, could, could you please now uh, outline how you plan to save the world? Um, how does it happen? How do we get there? I mean, one of the reassurances that you have from not believing in a direction to history is that you always believe that things might be okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't have a particularly negative view of what's going to happen in the future, and I don't necessarily have a positive one. I think right now we're in the balance. It's easy to imagine the forces and the pressures and the phenomenons that would lead to global conflict. Um, I do see another one, though, which is I see a yearning around me for a better kind of politics. And I don't just see it from young radicals, although I do especially from them in the protest movements for racial equality, for sexual equality, for a more fair, 
tolerant country, which I think when you take a step back and look at how our culture is changing, we are becoming more progressive, even under populist government, than we were a few years before. But it's more broad than that. I sort of feel, as I talk to people, that there's a real antipathy, there's a real frustration with these, with being chucked into blocks of humanity that are meant to hate one another and shout at one another and scream at one another and think only the very worst of one another, who want a better kind of debate, who yearn for a sense of common feeling. I think you saw flashes of that during the COVID lockdowns, even when you hear people clapping outside their windows, that there's a yearning a yearning for something better. And they will find that thing better in liberalism. And I don't do that as a sort of door-to-door salesman. I do it on the basis of 400 years of history. Ultimately, the fundamental truths which it contains about the use of reason in politics, about individuals rather than the group identity, about a priority of empiricism over emotion, about the separation of powers so that too much power cannot be held in one place, about freedom of speech and the fundamental idea that the best life is formed by being autonomous, by you being able to have as few restrictions on you as possible to find whatever life it is that you choose for yourself, that these are profoundly attractive. Now, it is at the moment at a low ebb, but because those ideas work, because they're so attractive, I do think people will come back to them. And we have proof of concept. You know, if if maybe if Trump had won the last election in the US, Maybe I'll have joined those who say, you know, there is no hope. Like, we just need to go hide in a cave somewhere and, you know, get, get a PlayStation in there and just hope this whole thing blows over. But that is not what I see around me. I see people willing to take on populism who want a better kind of world, a world that makes sense. And generally, you know, with a few steps back here and there, they are the ones who have the better chance, I think, of uh, defining the next few years of our lives. We're recording this, as I mentioned, as we seem to be on the verge of a war between Russia and Ukraine. And if that war breaks out, what will be the wider impacts? Will it be the beginning of the end of NATO and 70 years of peace in Europe? If you've come this far, you might be someone who's listened to this entire series. Perhaps you came to this podcast because you were worried about some of the big issues facing humanity And perhaps you're not feeling very reassured right now. But none of the bad things we've talked about possibly happening actually have to happen. It's easy to forget that only two years ago, we were coming to terms with the pandemic spread of an incurable disease. Whereas now that disease has numerous treatments, effective vaccinations, and after some terrible moments, society has held together. It may be battered, but it isn't yet broken. As Ian Dunt just said, people have a yearning for something better. And what's more, 400 years of history tells us that humanity can and often does do the right thing. We can stop fighting wars. We can create a framework of international laws. We can establish structures that preserve peace. We have proof of concept. We know this stuff works. The only thing we don't know is when we will start getting things right again. That's why it's worth trying to get our heads around why things are going wrong. I'm reminded of the words of Octavia Butler discussing George Orwell's book 1984, almost the definition of a bleak dystopian tale. She said, The very act of trying to look ahead to discern possibilities and offer warnings is in itself an act of hope. 
So, ultimately, that's what Doomsday Watch has been about. Hope. And with that, I want to thank you for listening and hope that you will join us for Season 2. In the meantime, I also need to thank some other people. First, all of the incredible guests who are the key to making this show worth listening to. Also, my fantastic producer Robin Leeburn, Paul Hartnell, who wrote the amazing music, and finally, all of the team at Podmasters who took a punt on a podcast series about Doomsday. Thank you, all of you, for making this possible.